I hope each of you on your way here this morning were driving slow enough that you could enjoy the view. It doesn't happen often, and I think it's another example of how we can remember who our creator is and the beauty of his creation. So if you didn't do that getting here because you were so worried about getting here on time, last minute instructions, please enjoy it on the way home as you also consider the truth of God's word that we get to hear today and also the fellowship of taking the Lord's Supper together. We've seen in the last several weeks how powerful and eye-opening Paul's key points in chapter 4 and 5 of 2 Corinthians really are, and how they directly address the very heart of who we are as God's people. Because all this information and encouragement and truth comes in the form of a letter, it has flowed in a unique way into our minds and hearts more different than if we were reading a manual that tries to communicate truth with outlines and an index of problems. The context of this letter comes to us sort of like waves breaking on the shore of your favorite beach. It has a rhythm, a rhythm of its own. And part of that rhythm is the personal touch of Paul's heart, which reflects God's heart. And so it draws us away from just listening in observing to actually engaging our own hearts in a way that frees us up to better see God's truth and be encouraged to trust him with our day-to-day lives. At some point, we see that the plan of God for his people is so much bigger than we expected, mainly because we finally realize how small we have made him out to be. This is not a you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of arrangement. This is not an arrangement that we negotiate so that we can still do and live the way we want to. This is a relationship initiated by God himself who loved us when we were still his enemy. God is patient with us. Yet he equips and prepares us with his indwelling spirit to live every day knowing that we belong to him, our creator and savior. Paul has given us three key truths to help us see God's purpose for us in this bigger redemptive plan. First, have we realized that he uses redeemed sinners, us, to reflect the light of his gospel to others. The people around us who do not know the Lord, the unredeemed sinners, are operating in darkness simply because they know their rebellion and sin is directed at their creator, whether they say they know there's a God or not. This is something we have to remember in the day in which we live especially. In Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, hear the word of God. 
For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Secondly, when we know that his plan includes us being his presence forever in a resurrected body, the light reflecting to those in darkness actually gets brighter. Because the certainty of this hope for our future just can't be hidden. So while we mourn and grieve over the darkness that seems to be getting even darker in a culture in which we live, we can also thank God that his light will shine brighter in that darkness. And only we as his children, as Christians, can say that. So his plan for us now becomes even more important. In other words, his plan is still for us to reflect the light of his gospel to others, even in and through these harder trials. But God always provides the grace we need to do what he calls us to do. And you know what? There's only one way to really find that out. And what is it? To actually go through something hard. That's when you find out how his grace is sufficient. Will we trust him or will we lose heart? Remember, too, that even a small light shines brighter in great darkness. But how much more light shines forth from the Lord's gathered people who then reflect the light of the gospel together or wherever they are? And I don't know about you, but I love these little twinkle light deals that we've got up everywhere and you know what when we used to be able to gather and watch a football game at night in some part of the year like this season and everybody had a little light what was your first response even if you hate football even if you hate crowds there was no way you could not say what that is so beautiful it's attractive. It does catch your eye. Well, folks, that's our role. Not only do we see better what's really going on and how to live, but those in darkness then see something that they don't usually see or want to deal with. And what is that? Their own true condition. The need for a Savior. They may still choose to love the darkness they're in, but the gospel may work in their hearts and prove to be the power of God, as Paul puts it, for their salvation when they believe. There's a third key truth that we keep seeing over and over in these chapters, but especially in chapter 4. That's that, And these truths help us see God's purpose for us. Remember that in his bigger redemptive plan. And I'll ask it in the form of a question again. Do we desire to learn how not to lose heart? 
as we agree to keep reflecting his light, knowing the Lord is walking with us in whatever things that are hard that he's brought to us. If we desire to learn how not to lose heart as we agree to that, we will look beside us and know God's presence and peace in ways that we've never understood before in our whole life. We must be able to honestly answer this question with, yes, I desire to learn how not to lose heart. And I agree that reflecting the light of Christ is a major purpose of my life in all circumstances. And in our passage today, which is verses 6 through 10 of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to give us encouragement to always make it our aim to please the Lord. So let's see how he does that. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So, we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home living with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe see it. Okay, so verse 6 starts out with, So we are always of good courage. I hope you were not laughing when you read that. Going, yeah, right. So based on us grasping and applying to our lives what Paul has written concerning what we should know and agree to learn, we are always of good courage. Wow, what does that mean? Good courage literally means to be confident of good cheer. Paul uses it in a very unique way, though. He's talking about the fear that vanishes when we are reassured that God is in control. Do we need that? The fear that vanishes when we are reassured that God is in control. He's not saying that we never fear, but he is saying that when we desire and agree to cooperate with God's purpose for us, to reflect his light to the world we live in, in and through both good and really hard trials, we will find that God has wrought in us the courage to trust him. Because we know our faithful God is in control in our lives right now. Many of you 
have had this tested in ways that you've never dreamed of in the last few months, not just because of COVID. We may not know why he has allowed hard times, but we will, as Paul also learned, find out that God is with us, using everything to accomplish his purposes in ways that are, you know what, we each need to admit this, beyond our own understanding most of the time. Perhaps you're going through something that's so hard you can't see this far. And yet there's somebody you love in your family, a worker, an old friend, somebody who's watching you and going, they say they believe in God. Are they going to trust him? They're not relegating what you're going through to something silly. They're watching when it, you don't think they are. And this is not to make you paranoid. This is to firm up your faith that God's going to use your pain to actually maybe bring somebody to himself that you have been praying for forever, or maybe you don't even know who they are. That's what he can do. Another thing that we find out in this process of learning how not to lose heart is how always to be of good courage. And that is that we cannot muster this kind of courage on our own. And how many of us have found that out recently? You might make it for a day, a week, a month. Maybe you think you're really strong and you can gut it out. But you know what? It's not going to last. And some of us have found that out in new ways recently. We can try with all our might and sometimes muster something, but it won't last. And we can try to name it and claim it, but again, it disappears. God desires us to learn to trust him because he knows something that he is absolutely committed to teaching us. And it's really simple. He is all we need. So, ask yourself, what is he doing in my life right now that's teaching me that he is all sufficient? And if you've got a list a mile long, or if you've got one big thing that you just are really having trouble getting over, thank him in your heart right now for allowing that so that you are learning how big and sufficient he really is. Remember, too, from verse 5, that Paul knows he has the guarantee of the Holy Spirit dwelling in and working in him. And then, in verse 6, we read, For we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. So while in this life now we are not in the physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't know if you've ever thought about it like that, but he is reigning in his resurrected body, so we're not in his physical presence. We are going to take a supper that looks at it a different way, a symbol of his physical work that he accomplished, but he is spiritually in us and with us right now. 
we live now in the earthly tent of our physical bodies. And when Jesus ascended into heaven in his resurrection body, that demonstrated what will happen when he raises our bodies from death and transforms them into a resurrected body designed for eternal life in his presence. Amen. Paul did not want us to think he was saying that we can have no real present experience of the Lord. Christians have a faith experience now. Not a sight experience. Any spatial separation now is temporary. That's not final. And a faith experience now is no less real. And then in verse 7, he really emphasizes this. A verse so short, even I can memorize it. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Do we? So we should look at life now with the eyes of faith and not just with physical observation. And in fact, faith in God, not reliance on appearance, is one of Paul's major points in everything he writes. But when we die and are in the presence of the Lord, we will be living in sight of our Lord. And that's why our hope should be so exciting. In verse 8, Paul's thought continues by acknowledging that by really knowing these truths, we can say that, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And each one of us, who knows the Lord, no matter how old or young we are, has known a little bit of that yearning at some point. And notice that Paul's confidence in the future translates into a life here in which he really does demonstrate a strong anticipation of what's to come. While he could have used this opportunity to explain in detail the questions about our intermediate state, and you know what that is, between our death and our bodily resurrection, that's the only word that makes any sense, even to theologians that have brains ten times our size. Something intermediate between the time we die and the time our bodies rise to be reunited with our redeemed souls in heaven. He could have used and explained it, and we would have all loved it. But it's not there, and it's not explained very well. So guess what? All we need to know is that God's going to take care of this, and we will be in his presence spiritually, and the body will be reunited, and we don't need to worry about what's going on in between. But it's obvious that something else has Paul's utmost attention here is why he's not dwelling on this. And what is that? Paul's main thought is not about our state now or in between. His thought is focused on, there's one word that catches this. His thought is focused on the wonder 
of actually being with Christ. And yeah, he did see the body of the risen Christ. Briefly. Can you take his word? Of being at home with the Lord. There's no other way to explain it except by vocabulary like wonder. The sheer wonder of it. And then in verse 9, he says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. How many of us have taken that verse out of context for literally our whole lives? And we go, yeah, we're always supposed to please the Lord. I don't know about you, but going through this book, the way we're going through it, it has hit a hundred times harder in the context of what Paul is writing about to this congregation. We belong to Christ. We don't only live in anticipation of being with Christ. Here Paul encourages us now to please the Lord in everything. The idea is that since Christ has done everything needed to ensure our future and His presence forever and ever, we should live now with the primary aim of pleasing Him in everything. Isn't that one of the reasons you're here? Is that reason growing in importance? Paul is addressing those who are alive. So he's not talking about the intermediate state. Once we die, there's nothing more that can be done to affect our future He's also not specifically addressing pleasing the Lord once we have our resurrected body. He's talking to us. His subject now is the now. The things or actions that we do in this life in the body. And this is made really clear in verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done, where? In the body, whether good or evil. Now, I don't know about you, but there's an exclamation point that we usually use in sentences. This verse is an explanation point that goes beyond anything I've ever seen. What did Paul just do? He's not laying a guilt trip on us. He's showing us how important our lives are right now. It matters. And at first we may think that this verse, let's read it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Is that a contradiction to what we know about our justification? No, it is not. He's not speaking about justification here. This verse actually pictures the demonstrations in this life that we are justified. Nobody who is truly justified 
can never demonstrate it by the way they live. Justified is when God declares a sinner to be just on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The gospel says that when those who have been made alive by God turn from their own works, which can only condemn them, and instead by faith embrace Christ as their Savior, God declares their sins to have been punished at Calvary and imputes the righteousness of Christ to their account. In case you're wondering, in this chapter, in the, in the last verse is one of the most clear statements of this in the whole Bible. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the only way we can stand before God Almighty. And here in verse 10, we see all appearing before the judgment seat of Christ. What Paul is focusing on here is not just the separating of sheep from goats, from the saved, the saved from the unsaved. Revelation 22, verse 12, and some other places also says that Christ will repay everyone for what they have done. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what's due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Why? Why? If we're already forgiven completely, already are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because there will be evidence in a Christian's life of their faith in Christ in their actions. There's no reference here or anywhere to condemnation for those who are truly saved. But there is recognition of responsibility and accountability. God knows all. The more evidence the more there will be some kind of reward. How many of you missed that part of this verse and went right to the whatever is evil is going to be? No. And the reward itself will bring glory to Christ. And one of our greatest joys of eternity will be to give those rewards, throw them down at Christ's feet because it was only by his means and ways and work that we could even do it because he made us alive in him. Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, getting the glory should excite us if we really do want to reflect the glory of Christ to our world. This very idea should greatly encourage us now to live more responsibly and accountably. Now, 
just, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because you could go off on this little trail and stay there forever and be totally confused. But think about this. We have no earthly context for understanding this. Have you ever heard of a court of law in which people's good deeds are rewarded? It doesn't exist. Here on earth, everyone in a court case is either determined to be guilty or innocent. The guilty are punished and the innocent are freed. That's about it. That's the way we think about this. This is not what this is saying. At the judgment seat of Christ, he determines what each one of us is due for how we've lived. Rewards for good conduct only possible by those who have been redeemed and have trusted him. And loss for unacceptable behavior. Loss. What does that mean? For the Christian, it does not mean eternal condemnation. Every one of our sins was paid for by Christ on the cross. We are forgiven, but it might very well mean, and by the way, commentaries, if you want a crazy experience, start reading on this subject. Oh, my goodness. It may very well mean some kind of sense of loss of reward that could have brought more glory to the one who saved us. Does that make any sense? When we're finally there and we come before the judgment seat of Christ and we see clearly and know that he has always seen clearly and yet he will show us times where we have trusted him when he knows it was tough. And that will be recognized. And we will go, yeah, but, but I'm, I fell. I'm always so weak there. And he'll be looking at us and say something like, yeah, but you trusted me with it. Finally, this time, and maybe this time, and maybe a hundred times. And that wouldn't have happened unless I had changed your heart in the first place and given you a disposition to know me and love me. So for the times that we never did, there will be some kind of loss. I could have glorified Christ more and more and more. We don't understand how this will work, who all will hear it, but we know right now God sees us right now. God will reveal it then. And we will be probably surprised by how much he has done in us to change us. Everybody that's there that's Christian will be forgiven. Now, I don't know if, if we'll ever understand that till we're there. Can you imagine sitting in a room with all of us together and nobody has any sinful thoughts? and we're all forgiven, and we all know that when our hearts are revealed by Christ, 
And we were surprised that so-and-so and so-and-so that we thought was just sitting over there in a bumpkin forever and ever in their life had trusted Christ more in these areas and that area than we have. We will be rejoicing. But there will be some kind of sense of loss, maybe pretty serious. But what is Paul putting it here for? To encourage us to take stock of every day, to be more responsible and accountable. Not to turn so serious that we don't enjoy his blessings. That's not what he's getting at. Or a guilt trip to get even more depressed than we already are or were. It's to motivate us knowing that Christ's work is sufficient, that he is sufficient to live now, wanting and desiring to reflect his glory. We know we're going to mess up a lot. But the disposition to grow in this, those areas is a wonderful gift. And it's his gift to us. We get to take the Lord's Supper right now. And yes, it's still in those little bitty things. We're trying to be careful. We know that this... Supper is not appointed primarily for our physical body, which is very apparent when we see it. It's instituted primary, primarily for our souls. And we need to see what Scripture teaches, that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus and believe on Christ. That sounds simplistic. I hope in the context of the word of God that we've just heard, that, that this bears more weight than normal. As we sing together, use this song to let God work in your heart and mind to bring you to a place where you're thankful for his work, honest with him, with where you are right now. <laughs>